morning. We shall read the word of the Lord. Today, we will read from three different passages. First, from Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 26. Then from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 21 and 22. And then back to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 61 through 62. Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 26 says the following. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Now from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 21 and 22. It says, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go. Sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Finally, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 61 through 62, says, Let another said, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Well, Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It's good to look out and see each of you here. So thankful for each of you and uh, blessed for this time that we have in the Word of God. So why don't we go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 24. Acts 24. We'll try to work our way through the entire chapter. The verses that were just read to us are very important because they express the heart of the Apostle Paul. Paul did not consider his life to amount to anything apart from Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was his life. That's why he lived. And Paul could have never accomplished all that God had set out for him to accomplish if he valued his life, if he valued his life, his way, more than God's. And so that's where we've been in the book of Acts. We've been studying the Apostle Paul. Interestingly to me is that Acts covers the testimony of Paul, the, the, the happenings, the surroundings of Paul's life. But what it doesn't cover are the deep theological truths that Paul taught. You don't find those in the book of Acts. Oh, there's hints to them. There, there are threads that take you to certain theology that Paul uh, would, would speak of, but the deeper theo theological teachings, the, the deep doctrines that Paul laid down are found in the letters that he sent out to the churches. So in the book of Acts, we have a picture of the man. We have the character of the man. We can see this is a man who doesn't consider himself more important than Christ, and he lives his life that way, and he's willing to make any sacrifice in order that he might be somehow uh, uh, put to or, 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 or uh, measured to Jesus himself. He wanted to suffer as Christ suffered. He wanted to be raised as Christ was raised. And, and yet, there's another whole side of the Apostle Paul that we haven't studied. 
and we won't until we open up one of the epistles. And uh, I don't know exactly where we'll go after we finish this Acts series here in November. I know we have a series in in December on divinity that I'm excited about, and I'm going to tag team with Pastor Brenton. We'll share weeks in preaching that message through the whole month of December. And then I have a couple other ideas that I want to look at for early January. And then we'll get back into a verse-by-verse study. And I think it probably will be uh, the book of Philippians, the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. It is a beautiful letter. It is, I think, very significant and meaningful to each of us as we read it. You'll find a lot of life application in Philippians. So we will be there, and we will learn some of these deep theological truths that Paul writes about that aren't seen in the book of Acts. But here we are, and where are we? Well, when Paul arrived in Jerusalem at the conclusion of his third missionary journey, he was really trying to pacify some of the Christian Jews by going to temple to show them that he wasn't anti-Jewish, even though he was a Christian, okay, and, and, and that he still believed in some of the customs of Israel, so he went there to practice some of the customs. And while he was there, some Jews from Asia Minor, when Paul had visited on his missionary journey, Asia Minor, many Jews were saved. So many that the Jews that were not saved were angry with Paul because they literally took away their friends. You know, the, the, these, now they're Christians. Now they're following Jesus. And the rest of the Jews are pretty upset about it. Well, they make their way all the way to Jerusalem for the feast of, of uh, Pentecost. And Paul is there. And they see him uh, at the temple making his, uh, practicing what he's practicing, which is a Nazarite vow. And they're upset. And so they spread rumors about Paul that he did all these terrible things to the Jews uh, in uh, their town back in Asia Minor. So uh, Paul comes under attack and they almost kill him. And, And the Romans step in. The Romans take him, they seize control of Paul. From that point forward, Paul will never again be a free man. He'll never again, in the physical realm, be a free man. So now his ministry is as a prisoner, and he spends his time as a prisoner under Rome's occupation in three cities, first Jerusalem, which was for a few days, then in Caesarea for a few years. Uh, Over two years he was in Caesarea, and then finally he shipped off to Rome, where he spends the rest of his days, and then his life is taken. He is he's martyred. So much of Paul's testimony is littered with trials and court appearances, more so than we even think. In fact, to be honest with you, the whole book of Acts is a series of court trials. It's a series of Christians who are being held up by the the jurisprudence of the day, And, and they're always under trial. And you would think, why would the Holy Spirit you know, record in such vivid detail, like take Paul, for example, all of these trials that Paul is in. We've already covered several. Uh, if you want to go back and look at it, Paul faced a trial before Galileo, and then he was sidetracked on the island of, of Cyprus by uh, Sergius Paulus and, and, and somebody who rose up against him there, and then he's facing the Jerusalem council, and then he's facing the Sanhedrin, and then as he traveled on his missionary journeys, uh, the, the leaders of the temple would, 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 would uh, hold him uh, in contempt. And, and he's always under trial. Now he's under trial with Felix, and he's going to be handed over from Felix to Festus. And then from Festus, he's going to go to Rome, and he's going to be handed over to King Agrippa. All these trials, why? Why would the Holy Spirit see it so important that the details of these trials be in Scripture? And I'll tell you why. Because... Throughout history, but especially in the early years of the church, the life of the church, Christianity was always condemned on the basis that it was treasonous, that it came against the Jewish religion. The the Jews saw the Christians as insurrectionists. These are a bunch of revolutionaries. And so all the trials basically are basic trials of treason. They're, they're, They're attempting to prove that the Christians are treasonous, okay? And the Holy Spirit records this for us, trial after trial, so that in every case in the book of Acts, we would see a trial 
we would also see that not one single time were the trumped-up charges brought against those Christians ever true. We see all these trials in the book of Acts because the Spirit of God wants us to understand that we're going to always be misconstrued. We're going to always be mistreated. We're going to always be uh, called treasonous. If you look at our day today, people look at Christians and they see Christians as terrorists, another form of terrorist. It's sad. Even in our government, in some of our agencies, they place us in that capacity. So nothing's new under the sun. Uh, be, be encouraged. It didn't start here in the United States of America in our day. It started all the way back in the early church, and the Holy Spirit records it for us so beautifully. But it's abundantly, abundantly clear that, that in every case, the Christian was innocent of the charges. And, and, and I think it's important for us to understand, let me just put this side note in, a point of application for today, the day that we live in. Christianity, the world will have you believe that Christianity is political treason, that it's tied to politics. True Christianity is not committing political treason. True Christianity, Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 13, the powers that, are, that, are, that, that be are ordained of God. Okay, Peter said, submit yourselves to the kings and the governors and the police. Nowhere in the Bible does it promote political positioning as Christians. We, we, we can be blamed for that, and sometimes it's absolutely true. Christians that have become more political than they have become Christian. But that's not the way the Bible teaches it. Christians are not political insurrectionists. Christians should be class 1A law-abiding citizens. The only time that, it, where's an amen? See, that almost, it's almost hard for you to even amen that. But the reality is the only time that a Christian is not a law-abiding citizen is when the government over us is trying to put us in a place that we would actually go against and violate the laws of God. If that happens and they're wanting us to violate the laws of God, then the Bible's very clear. Peter said, choose between God and men. And any Christian worth their salt that is truly saved will choose God, not man. And in that case, we still don't rise up and we don't act like the world, but we do stand firmly on the truth that we believe. We will not go along with, with laws that violate the word of God or violate God's law. So this is important for us to understand. Paul, this is how Paul lived. Paul went from trial to trial to trial. You don't ever see the Holy Spirit leading Paul to go out as an insurrectionist and behind closed doors, behind the scenes, throw rocks at the Roman you know, palace or throw rocks at Herod's palace. He didn't do that. He was a law-abiding citizen. Now, he would not break the law of God for it, but he was not out to be against anybody, not even the Romans who occupied Jerusalem. He's submitting to the Romans. He didn't ask his followers to somehow break him free from the Roman, Roman prison, never once, because this is how a Christian handles their business. My goal in life is not to be a political power player. My, my position in life is to make sure that Jesus Christ is crucified, that people know that, and that they have opportunity to consider Jesus as their personal Savior. That is my goal in life, okay? So let's pick it up. There's three things that happen in our text. We're going to cover it quickly. Three things that occur in this chapter. First, we have the accusations that the high priest, the elders, and their skilled lawyer bring before Festus, the governor of Caesarea, or governor from Rome in Caesarea, they have accusations they bring. We're going to look at the accusations that they bring against Paul. And then we're going to take a look at Paul's response, his defense against the accusations. You will see that Paul handles himself in a biblical manner the whole way through. Okay, then thirdly, we're going to see how Felix responds. What is his verdict based on the evidence that the Jews bring against Paul? 
So let's start with the accusations brought against Paul. Verse 1, And after five days the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. Now, who is this Tertullus? So the, the high priest and the elders bring this other guy, this, this, this skilled lawyer, who's going to represent them in the case. Uh, you have the presence of all three. That tells you just how important it is to them to try and seize Paul. Remember now, these are the same guys that while the Romans were going to transport him to this council of the Sanhedrin, they had set a plot to kill him. And a group of men even said that we, our lives are on the line. If we don't kill him, kill us. That's how much they wanted to kill Paul. And of course, God, by his providential care, amen, aren't you glad for God's providence? God made it known to the commander, the tribute, in Jerusalem what was going to happen. And that's why they shipped him to Caesarea. That's why he's under Governor Festus or, or Governor Felix right now. And so, so, so verse 2, and, and, he, and when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse Paul, saying, since through you, now he's speaking to the governor of the area, who is a Roman citizen, who was a Roman leader, his name, uh, and this guy is, is, means business, his name is Felix, okay? So he's appealing to him. He says, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since... By your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. Now, what that guy just said with all those words is nothing. All he did was try to flatter the governor. Tertullus lays it on thick. Most excellent Felix. Really? You want to hear a little bit about Antonius Felix? His life began as a slave, but he had a brother who was known by the emperor Claudius. And because of his brother's influence, Felix rose in status. He went from being a slave in Rome to being the first slave child ever gaining freedom and becoming a governor of a Roman province. He's the first slave to become a governor. But his slave mentality is still very much intact. Let me explain. Tacitus, who is a Roman historian, he's not a Christian, Tacitus said that Felix was a master of cruelty and lust who exercised the powers of a king with the spirit of a slave. The picture drawn by Tacitus of Felix's public and private life is not a pretty one. Trading on the influences of his famous brother, who knew Claudius, Felix indulged himself in all kinds of excesses, thinking that he could do any evil without any reprimand or consequence. Tertullus said this, quote, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this notion in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. He, he laid it on so thick that even Felix knew the guy was just tr throwing garbage around, because that was not his reputation at all. These were empty words of flattery. The respected theologian, an English theologian, his name you might be familiar with, John Stott, he said, quote, in reality, Felix had put down several insurrections with such barbarous brutality that he earned for himself the horror, not the thanks, of the Jewish population. So the Jews did not like Felix, but this skilled attorney is throwing all kinds of, of uh, wonderful things about this wonderful, you know, man, uh, all a bunch of, it's just a crock. So, so, so in today's world, Flattery is interesting. It's viewed by many people, even Christians, to be a great strategy in certain situations, and they use it appropriately. Flattery. You're not going to like what I'm going to share if you are a person who's influenced by flattery. All right, you ready? 
The Bible doesn't say anything positive about flattery. The Bible speaks of it as sin. It's a sin. The Bible doesn't give any, any concessions. Romans 16, verse 18, speak to us of those who do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly and by smooth words and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the simple. That's what flattery achieves. It dupes people. It gets what the person who's using it wants. Jude 1.16 speaks of those who mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. Look, it's, we're not talking about saying nice things about people, but there ought to be truth in it. What we're talking about is excessive nicety. You're going beyond the truth. <laughs> You're just trying to, and it works. That's why people use it. Because everybody likes, there's one name that everybody in the room knows really well and likes hearing. Yours. We're all in the same category. We like hearing our name. And when somebody speaks wonderful things to us about our, oh, 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 what we, well, well, oh, please stop, please stop. We're all given to that pride, right? And that's why people use it. Four different times the book of Proverbs connects flattery with the sin of sexual immorality. Interesting. Many people have been seduced into immorality through simple flattery. You find someone who's never felt that they amounted to anything. Whose parents told them they never amounted to anything. And they have a deep longing in their heart to be loved. And by the way, God put that desire in them. And so somebody comes along and uses flattery. What Flattery in that situation is? It's lies. I used to speak to young people when I was a youth pastor, and I used to say to the girls in the youth group, and, and when I would travel and do youth revivals, and I would say to the girls, whenever a boy throws a line... What he's really throwing is a lie. A line is, oh, I love you so much. I want to show you how much I love you. Don't you love me back? Why don't you show me how much you love me? Let's love each other. It's a lie. It's not about him loving you. It's about him lusting you. That's where flattery comes in. To get what we want. It's not beneficial to the person that we're using flattery with. It's for our purposes. Proverbs 20, 19 says, Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with a simple blab babbler. In, in the other version, it says flatterer. So another word for flattery in the Bible is a babbler. That would be interesting. Somebody who uses the, the flattery, you know, somebody you know that uses flattery a lot. And, and, and you just say, would you please stop babbling? You're actually giving a biblical approach to the whole concept of flattery. Psalm 78, 36 says, man has ever, even attempted to flatter God. Listen, but they flattered, with, uh, they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. When you give God insincere praise, it's flattery, church. Insincere praise is flattery. And God doesn't want to hear it. He doesn't receive it. He's not into it. So we need to be very careful that we not fall into the trap of flattery. I, I know somebody who uh, used to just irritate me to no end. They would say, to, they'd say, oh, well, bless, bless your heart. Bless your little heart. If they gave you their whole thought in word, it would be, bless your little heart. I am going to eviscerate your character behind your back, and you're going to need every blessing you can get when I'm done with you. Bunch of lies, using flattery to try and make someone feel important when really you don't think they're important at all. They're not as good as you. That's in your, in your view. Be careful, church. Be careful. And if you're one that uses flattery, stop it. 
There's not a biblical passage that sees flattery in the positive. Yes, every one of us should encourage others. The Bible talks a lot about encouragement, right? The Bible talks about being kind and being nice, you know. Remember the Bambi movie? What did Bambi's mom say? Uh, if, you, if you can't say something nice, don't say... No, that wasn't Bambi. It was the, the thumper, the little rabbit. His mom told him, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. Okay, we ought to practice that. Hey, by the way, Disney came up with that. Boy, how they've changed, huh? Okay, anyway. So, verse 5, for we have found this man a plague. They, they, they think Paul is a plague. One who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. It'd be like somebody saying of a Christian, you're a bigot. You're out of the same mold as Hitler, a believer. How, where do they get that from? So there's no truth to it, zero. That's, it happens today. And they're doing it to Paul. You and I should follow Paul, his lead. He faced the same persecution that we will face. The Jewish leaders in their presentation said that Paul was a plague. That charge alone speaks of a political danger. That's what they mean by that. He's politically dangerous to the Jews. He's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. A sect of the Nazarenes? He's not even in a sect. But that's how they described him. By the way, ancient Judea was filled with, with would-be messiahs and revolutionaries who were rising up against Rome. So Tertullus, in attempting to put Paul in the same group with these kinds of words was trying to appeal to the Roman governor. Um, let's just keep going here because this gets very interesting. We, we would go to verse 7, but in the ESV there is no verse 7. Did you notice that? If you're using the ESV, there's no verse 7. Um, there's a little footnote instead. You know what the footnote says? Early manuscripts were missing verse 7. Not all, but most. We're missing verse 7, therefore they don't, they don't list it. But they do, in the footnote, tell you what verse 7 said. So I'm going to go ahead and read for you verse 7 that's not in the ESV and carry it right into verse 8 and 9, okay? So let's, let's take a look at this, okay? So uh, verse, verse 7 is, And we would have judged him according to our law, but the chief, here it is, but the chief captain Lysias came and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come before you. Okay? But the chief captain Lysias came and with great violence took him out of our hands by examining, verse 8, him yourself, you will be able to, to find out from him about everything of which we accused him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. Tertullus didn't say anything. He didn't bring any charge. He gave a comment. He made a, but there's no evidence to what he's saying. And then guess who goes along with him? Guess who's shaking their heads like dogs in the back of a, you know, car? It's, it's the Jewish leaders. Whatever he says, we're with. Oh yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Well, if these charges were true, why didn't you bring witnesses to the evidence or give evidence to what, what happened? They couldn't. So now we go to Paul's defense, okay? Uh, Paul's defense. Verse 10, and when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation. That's true. Paul's not blowing the guy up like he's something special, but you have been governing for many years. That's true. He says, I cheerfully make my defense. Now, he's not talking about the man <coughs> cheerfully making his defense. He's talking about himself. Paul's saying, after hearing what these, the, the, the accusations are and them not presenting any evidence, I'm more than happy to speak and defend, my, and defend myself. So that's what he does. Now, if you look at verse 10, and when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I was worshiping God at the temple. Okay? 
in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogue, <laughs> in the synagogue of the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. So Paul sets it straight. Paul's like, uh, excuse me, it's only been 12 days. You'd think if it happened 12 days ago, that's, there'd be enough people that were witnesses of it that you would have brought, they would have brought them with them to speak in their behalf. Where are the witnesses? And the truth is, I didn't do any of the things they're saying that I did. And he didn't. He did none of it. False accusations. <laughs> Verse 14, but this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect. They want to put me in this picture of being part of an of a insurrectionist group. I'm not part of an insurrectionist group. I am part of a group. It's called The Way, those who follow the way, Jesus Christ. I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. They're trying to make it look as if he has somehow gone against the law and the prophets. Paul said, no, I, I even went to Jerusalem to the temple to offer up the customs of the Jews. So it's, it's, it's not true. None of it's true. Uh, interestingly, Tertullus called Christianity the sect of the Nazarenes. Paul called it the way, two different views. What the world calls you today as a Christian is different than who you are as a Christian. I do hope you understand that. I hope that you find your identity as a Christian in Jesus Christ, not in what the world says about you. Sometimes I see Christians getting so upset with what the world says about them. Did Paul get upset? No, he's simply stating truth. Paul's not raising his voice. Paul's not pounding the desk. Paul's not lashing out at those men. He's speaking to the governor, and he's simply stating truth. He's, he's separating the truth from all their lies. That's how we handle things today. You just speak the truth. And when you stand for truth and the world calls you names for it, you don't worry about that. Why? Because my identity isn't found in what they say. My identity is found in who Jesus Christ is. And Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Jesus said, the world hates me because I declare that its sins or its deeds are evil. That's why they hate me. That's why they hate you. Don't take it personal. Even if they call you names, don't take it personal. They're, they hate God. They hate Jesus for what he represents. And what's interesting is Satan is such a cunning beast that he would actually have them, those who are calling out, calling names and lying, he would have them say to you, you're nothing like Jesus. Jesus loved people. Jesus himself said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came with a sword to separate father from mother, father from child, mother from daughter. In other words, what he's saying is, it wasn't that Jesus was against the nuclear family. It's just he's saying, if you consider anything more important than me, you're not worthy of me. So when you say to your family member, no, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I place my hope and trust in Him. And your family says, you need to stop that right now. If you don't stop believing that right now, we will denounce you, we'll break fellowship with you. That's what Jesus is referring to. It's not that He's trying to separate you from your family. The world won't have it. But because you believe in Him, oftentimes it's your own family that separates. Interesting, last week we talked about... Uh, the providence of God, the, the providence of God, how he's working behind the scenes when we cannot see him. See, some of us get all concerned when we can't see God's work. Did you know that most of God's work you can't see? If you do get a chance to see some of God's work, it's just the tip of the iceberg. So much more is happening than you'll ever know. And it's always happening, always and I, I mentioned to you that Paul was in prison in Rome, and he's writing a letter to uh, the church at Philippi. And he talked about Lydia, this seller of purple, this businesswoman who was so successful in her business. And he met her down at the river's edge with her companions. 
They were God-fearing people. And he met there and he shared the gospel with Lydia and her companions. And all of them got saved. Powerful. He leaves Lydia, goes back to Philippi. They start the church. While he's there in Philippi, a little girl who had a demonic spirit on her, she was possessed. This spirit gave her the ability to, to do divination. She was able to uh, uh, tell the future through the, this demon that was in her. And her family was making money off of her. Paul comes along, and in the name of Jesus, he releases her from the demon. Immediately, the family is enraged because he took away their livelihood, their money. After church, someone came to me and said, Pastor, do you know? And the person that came to me, I think, is a modern-day Lydia. Absolutely a modern-day Lydia who has reached out to help and lead people to Jesus and point them towards Jesus. And one of the people she pointed to Jesus got baptized in our church, the last baptism service, got saved. She said, did you know that that's her story? She sat there last Sunday morning when you shared it. She was shocked to hear her story in the Bible. She was raised in the part of the country where she was raised into the occult. She had the power, the ability through Satan to read palms, to do all kinds of things supernaturally. She got saved here at Vero Bible Fellowship, gave her heart to Christ and was baptized and was set free of all of it to the point, because I spoke to her last week, to the point that she said, it's not that I stopped doing it. I can't do it. There's no more demon that's controlling me or leading me in it. There's no influence. God has truly set me free. She couldn't believe it last week to hear her story in the Bible. <laughs> Isn't that great? That's how God's moving. But see, most of us don't know that. But the reality is God's always moving, church. In your life, he's always moving. And they couldn't lay anything on Paul. They just couldn't. There's no way. And he, he basically says that, you know. Verse 19, they ought to have been here before you to make an accusation. Where, where are they? they? Well, they're not there. There's a reason why they're not there. Because no, nobody saw it. <laughs> and if they brought somebody, it would have had to have been a lie. So Christians should never be timid about or ashamed of the truth of the, or, the, or, or, or what people will say. Because if you walk in truth, what do you have to fear? Amen? And you say, well, I'll tell you what I fear. They're not, think, they're not concerned about hearing the truth. They're going to make up lies about me, and I'll end up in jail, and, and I'll never get out. Maybe God ordered that up for you. What? Uh, hello? The Apostle Paul. You know what God's plan for Paul is in his life? The whole way through all this that's happening is to somehow get him to Rome, where he can present the gospel and then die, be martyred. This is God's will for Paul. And Paul told him at, at the, or God told him at the outset, you're going to suffer many things for my namesake. What makes you and I think we're any better than Paul, that we shouldn't suffer? Don't become so Americanized in your faith that you stop following Scripture. The Bible is very clear to us that, yeah, we will be falsely accused. And yes, it might even land, you might lose a job, you might lose your home, you might end up in prison. All thanks be unto God that his work might be completed in my life. That's what we ought to be concerned about. I've already determined if I have to go to jail for the things I've preached, and the things I've preached, I'm telling you right now, the woke culture, they'd love to get their hands on me the things I've said, but I wouldn't back down from any of it. They'll never get an apology from me. Other pastors have apologized. One guy back in 2005 preached a sermon against sexual sin, including homosexuality as a sexual sin, because the Bible teaches that. Years later, 18 years later, people came to him, liberals came and said, you said this back then. You know what he did? 
he changed and said, no, I didn't really mean it like that. Can you imagine standing before Almighty God as a minister of the gospel and tell God why you waffled? Why you went soft on sin? I'm sorry. I'd rather hurt the feelings of the lost who are out to get me than to hurt God and to stand before God and have to say, well, I I just, it was so much pressure. Lord, it was just so much pressure. No, we're here to live for God. Amen? All right, let's go to the third thing, and that is Felix's verdict in the case. And I'll just tell you right out of the gate, here's his verdict. He wouldn't make a legal decision. His verdict was procrastination, which, by the way, is a decision. Procrastination is a decision. I want everybody here to hear this. Procrastination is a decision. It's a decision of inactivity, but it is a decision. When I was a youth pastor, that was a, a big-time thing for parents. Not for the kids, for the parents. Okay, we're going to go to the youth camp, and you got to have your child signed up by May 15th. And uh, the bus leaves June 1st. And one time, a girl pulled it, a mother pulled in the parking lot with her daughter, jumped out of the car. We're loading into the bus on June the 1st. And she said, oh, Pastor Greg, uh, here, here's my daughter. Here's her suitcase. And uh, we decided to go. And I said, uh, um, no, you didn't decide to go. Um, you decided not to go. No, I did not. I'm, I'm making a decision now. I want her to go on the trip. We're here in time. I said, no, no. You decided on May 15th because that was the cutoff for your daughter being able to go. You would have thought I was a three-headed monster spitting out gooey green slime. She couldn't handle it. Somebody who was holding her to a decision that she needed to make and wouldn't make it. And there had been a history of that. That was not the first incident. That was the last incident. (laughs) She never pulled that again afterwards. But Felix is not going to make a yes-no decision. He's going to make, well, I haven't decided yet. I'm just going to wait and see. Let's let's just see what happens. So verse 22, Felix having a rather accurate knowledge of the way. Interesting. He put them off saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept Paul should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So he's under kind of like a house arrest. Friends can visit, but he's not going to make a decision. I'm going to wait until Lysias shows up. Well, Lysias showed up. Nothing happened. Paul was under house arrest for two years under, under Felix. Here's what Felix did do. He showed up, Look at, if you want to look at the passage, verse 24, and after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla. What a terrible name. I hope nobody's named Drusilla. You know, okay, you know how a word association in your mind, you know what I, when I hear Drusilla, what I think of? Cruella. How many of you did the same? Exactly, okay. This is going south quick. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Oh, Paul's in prison, exactly where God wants him to be, doing the work of God from prison, preaching the gospel. And as he reasoned about right, oh, this is good. So you got Felix and his wife sitting there, and Paul begins to preach righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. And look at the response. Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present, and when I get an opportunity, I will summon you. That's a political answer for, let's get the heck out of here. I want to hear about righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come. Why? Well, let me give you the rest of the story. Felix wanted his wife to hear Paul's testimony. Okay, that's not a bad thing. But who is his wife? Who is Drusilla? She was the sister of Herod Agrippa II, mentioned in Acts chapter 25. We're just not there yet. Drusilla was beautiful. She was ambitious and about 20 years 
old at this point, and Felix had seduced her away from her husband and made her his third wife. Now, if that's your story, you took a 20-year-old girl, you seduced her to make her your third wife, how many of you would want to hear a sermon on righteousness, self-control, and coming judgment? <laughs> so there's a reason why he's wanting to get away. And what's Felix's response? Oh, I'm, he was alarmed. And another version says he was in fear. Not that Paul was trying to preach fear, but the message of the truth was fearful to him. Verse 25, go away for the present, and when I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. Verse 26, at the same time, he hoped that, here it is, now we get the truth. Here's why he procrastinated on a verdict over Paul, which had no evidence, which he should have easily made the, verdict, made the decision. But here it is, verse 26, at the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him and often and conversed with him. So what does that mean? Every time he was coming to visit Paul, giving Paul the allowance of friends visiting so they could bring money, he kept coming back to Paul. If Paul will bribe me, I'll give him the verdict he wants. Christians are tempted all the time to take the bribe, to lower our standard, to not speak the truth in certain places. It might not be for a money bribe, it's so that I don't lose my job. Paul wouldn't take it. He did not offer money to get the answer he needed. Why? Because God didn't want Paul to leave prison. God had a plan for Paul to stay in prison and finally end up in Rome. When two years had elapsed, two years, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And, desire, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Interesting. So he was under the guise of a, of a Roman governor who wanted favor with the Jews. So Paul was never given justice, even though he was not guilty of any of the, any of the charges. You ever feel like you've been falsely accused? How should you respond? In my life, when I've been falsely accused, and that's happened, the Lord has told me, shake the dust off your feet. Walk. I will handle those matters. They're not yours to handle. Your life is found in me. If you go face and try to fix your name and do this and that and whatever, now your life's in your hands. Friends, I would rather have my life in the hands of the Lord then try to fix it myself. You go, because wherever God leads, he has a plan. For me, wow, what a plan that I get to be a partner with all of you at Vero Bible Fellowship. What a blessing of God for what he has done and what he is doing and what he's going to do in the life of this flock. What a blessing. We want to be where God wants us to be. Don't try to represent yourself. Don't try to fix the problem like your name means something. Hey, it doesn't matter what people think about you. It's what Jesus says about you. Live there. Amen? We're going to close. Um, I, 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 I don't know how many of you here have really ever faced trouble or setback to the degree that you would possibly lose a job or, or lose uh, a lot of friends. But it's going forward in this country, it's liable to happen. That's a real possibility. I'm not trying to speak it over you like that's going to happen. I'm just saying, if you remain faithful to Jesus in this generation, you, you could suffer greatly. But wouldn't you rather suffer for the Lord and be known as one of his followers than to win with man and compromise your faith? Let's remain faithful. Father, thank you this morning for your, your word. We thank you for truth. 
that never changes because it's absolute. We thank you for a God who is unchangeable. You are immutable. And you've never changed. And you've never changed the gospel message down through the generations based on the culture of the day. The gospel has remained the same. And those who would see Jesus, what, what, what we actually, what was beautifully shared by Marshall in the communion service, the gospel, believing in Jesus, letting Christ become our life, letting him through his sacrificial death on the cross, letting him substitute for our place on the cross so that by him we could attain his righteousness because he's the one that did the work, not us. And we could be saved and set free, forgiven. God, I pray that if there's anyone here today that is unsaved, that has not truly believed in Jesus as the Son of God and as the Savior of the world, that they would recognize their own sinfulness and they would turn from their sin. They'd repent and they would, they would receive you by faith, knowing that your righteousness is for them. Oh God, bring salvation to those who are here that need it, that are looking for it. And Father, keep the rest of us strong in the faith. Your word in Matthew, Jesus, you said that those who endure to the end will be saved. It didn't mean that you wanted them to work hard so they could be saved. We're not saved by our hard work. What you meant was those who are truly saved by grace through faith will endure to the end. I pray that that would be the case for every member of this flock that knows Jesus. That our salvation would be proven by our endurance. And we give you thanks for your word. Amen. Amen. Thank you, church. I, you know, I was thinking about a song at the end, but I think we'll just... We had talked about maybe doing a song at the end, but I just think that we just need to settle with what we've learned today and consider it in your own heart. Don't be a flatterer. Don't fall into that trap. And don't fall for the flatterer, okay? Know who you are in Christ. That's what really matters. All right. Hey, make sure you take time to greet one another in fellowship. We do see ourselves as a family, don't we? We're not just a bunch of people that show up and then leave. We, we love each other. So love someone. You know, find them, get to know them, ask questions, whatever. And let's, let's care for each other before we walk out. God bless you.